Hello, this is Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a bi-weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the politics, the business, the technology, the ideas, and the buzz at the intersection of the environment and the economy. Do they go hand in hand, or is it more head to head? Let's find out. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, what does big business really think about action to fight climate change? We've got Goldie Hyder from the Business Council of Canada on the program. Then, oil workers planning their next career moves? Joy Warnock talks about her union's bold position on climate and a just transition. After that, we'll hear a 60-second summary of a major new report, and Mike Moffat caps it all off with his list of five other things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. Yes, how deep is your love? That's the question we're asking this segment. In particular, how deep is the love between Canada's business community and strong climate targets? If in the early days of environmentalism, it was easy to villainize big business, that's simply no longer the case. The dynamic between big corporations and the environment, it's gotten complicated. Sure, some of Canada's biggest businesses constitute some of Canada's biggest polluters, but there's a romance, a Bruin, driven by fast-growing billion-dollar markets for clean products, driven by the cost-cutting that comes with greater resource efficiency, and driven by greater accountability to shareholders around climate risks. But just how deep is their love? As my next guest says, priority number one for Canada's business community remains economic growth, but he believes it can be clean growth. He believes Canada can reach its most ambitious climate targets, and he and his members have ideas for how to do it. I'm welcoming Goldie Hyder. Goldie is president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, an organization that speaks for the CEOs of 150 of Canada's biggest companies, from the banks to the oil and mining companies, from Maple Leaf Foods to Blackberry, from Air Canada to Canada Goose. Goldie, thanks for being on the show. Eric, it's really great to be with you. So Goldie, we want to talk about the relationship between Canada's business community and climate change. And I want to start with a fun fact. In 2007, the Business Council of Canada called for a carbon price. Now, that was extremely early on in Canada's carbon pricing journey. Stephen Harper was prime minister. BC had not yet become the first province in Canada to implement a carbon price. And it's, it's reflective of a fairly proactive approach for the BCC when it comes to climate change. How would you describe the relationship between Canada's business community and climate change now? It's quite clear that from a from a business perspective, particularly for those publicly traded companies, this is this is not just good business because at the end of the day, your shareholder wants it, your employee wants it, your customer wants it, your community wants it, and your governments and your regulators want it. So clearly, you know, no one is is uh, certainly not the people that I represent, the business council, debating or discussing these things. In fact, I, I think the the goal is how can we lead, how can we have uh, honest conversations. Um, with governments, but also with citizens, because we know that it, that the to have the goal is one thing, but you really need to have a plan, and you really need to be transparent about 
you know, who has to give up what, how does life change? What are the consequences? What are the upsides? What are the opportunities? That I don't think has occurred just yet. And we think it's really important that, that you know, business is a big part of that. Okay. Uh, Goldie, how do you feel about Canada's current slate of climate targets? We have a net zero target by 2050. And just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced an increase of Canada's 2030 targets, that's under the Paris Agreement, uh, from 30% below 2005 levels to 40 to 45% below 2005 levels. How do those resonate with you and, and the business community? Well, you're right. Um, this is this has been a very you know f- a fluid situation. Um, with all due respect to governments around the world, they they get together and they make all kinds of commitments, uh, what without necessarily having the plan. And so w- you know when you start setting these targets, and you know they just seem like numbers, right? It's forty percent. It's fifty percent. I'm going to do seventy percent. We've got to focus in on the how. And so what we're trying to do is to say, look, can we get past the fact that at least, as I said, I I and none of my members are focused on, we're not having old debates here. We're focused on and have been for a long time, as you noted off the top, how are we going to do this? And so what we're saying to government is, let's make sure, and by the way, this last budget that just took place is a good start, right? I mean, they started to talk about some of these initiatives where they're going to be, you know, tax credits for carbon capture, the net zero accelerator fund, and looking to invest in infrastructure that's going to, again, help bring down, particularly through the infrastructure bank, you know, working in clean technology. Um, But we think it's a good start. It's not enough. We need to be much more uh, ambitious. Uh, This is a time for Canada to sort of go big or go home. And we have a reputation. We can do big things in this country. Let me be clear. Uh, You know, I and the members I represent are, are, are confident that we can get to the to the goals that that um, um, that are being outlined. We're not debating the, the, the goals. What we're debating is the journey. How are we going to do this? So it's clear, Goldie, that the business community is thinking a lot about this transition to a cleaner economy. When it comes to, to business and climate change and this transition, what's what, what's keeping you up at night? <laughs> Well, look, I, I think there's really two or three things I can say about this, as I mentioned. First and foremost is the need for sort of just to witness our federal government and our provincial governments aligned around sensible, sound carbon policy, right? We, we can't be subject to the whims and fancies of every election and changes after every one, right? We need to have a long view on this because we are talking about looking out to 2030 and 2050. So I, I'm not looking to the next election. I'm looking out to, you know, to our members are looking out to 2030 and 2050. So we need confidence that the rules of the game are going to be in place so that long-term investments can be made in Canada. We don't want to drive away capital. So let's make sure we're giving them a predictable, stable, clear regulatory and policy environment in which to operate. That's one. Secondly, this is perhaps the Albertan in me, but I am very concerned that there seems to be a rush to demonize our resource companies, particularly in the oil and gas industry. And they are not only a significant contributor to our to our GDP, which, as I said, can't be eliminated overnight. I really believe strongly, and I know firsthand from the people I've interacted with, they're very committed to the to the task at hand. They believe that they have a, 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 a real contribution to make when it comes to the innovation and the ingenuity uh, that is going to be necessary, uh, and that they have the capacity to scale and commercialize far better than some small clean tech company might or whatever, right? So at the end of the day, for us to have real impact, it's going to require real dollars and a size and a scale. So I, I think that's key. And And then the last thing I'll just say, and with all due respect to our political leaders around the country, um, you know, too often I'm I'm hearing them making it sound like this is going to be easy. 
that it's just easy. It's it's gonna we can do this in terms of achieving ambition ambitious reductions, but it won't won't harm anybody or it won't pain it won't be too painful. Um, I, I don't think that's that's the way in which to be honest with Canadians. I think that that I think that Canadians should know what we're trying to do. Um, they should know that we in the business community believe that it can be done, but that what we need to do is 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 really articulate what that path looks like, that it is a journey, it is going to be hard, it will have costs, and there will be choices that need to be made and trade-offs that need to be done. So let's work together to figure out what you know how to do that. Okay, now it's time for a lightning round. Goldie, are you ready for this? <laughs> All right. Let her rip. <laughs> Okay, here's how it works. I mention a current proposal from an environmental NGO, and you tell me if it might fly with the business community. Let's start with this one from Environmental Defense, Climate Action Network, and a group of NGOs to increase Canada's climate target to 60% reduction by 2030. That would be an increase from the current target of a 40 to 45% reduction. Goldie, what do you say to that? Too much, too soon, too fast, unlikely to receive Canadian support. Okay, here's a second one uh, coming originally from the International Institute for Sustainable Development to eliminate government subsidies to the fossil fuel sector. They were $1.9 billion in Canada in 2020, which was a threefold increase from 2019. What do you say to eliminating government subsidies to the fossil fuel sector? Define subsidy. <laughs> How's that short? <laughs> yeah, there's actually a lot said in those few words, uh, but this is the lightning round. No time to dwell. Okay, here's one that's been making the rounds lately, and it came to us from a listener via social media. Mandatory public disclosure of climate risks for Canada's big companies. Already there. Many Canadian companies are already leaders in this field. Uh, but what we all call on is clear rules, clear criteria on what it is that needs to be disclosed. No one has anything to hide here. On to question number four. This one, a policy proposal from Clean Energy Canada and Equiterra, among others, for a zero emission vehicle mandate, which requires car manufacturers to sell a minimum number of electric and zero emission cars. What do you say to that? First of all, auto manufacturers are working very hard to make EVs more available, but you can't mandate people to buy them. And so we have to make sure that we make it attractive to do so, whether that's incentives, but it's also infrastructure uh, and, and, and frankly, peer pressure to some extent. Okay. And last but not least, doubling the currently planned increase in the price on carbon. Uh, it's currently scheduled to hit $170 per ton by 2030. Uh, so double that to $340 per ton. What do you say? Have I mentioned competitiveness? Uh, only, only if this is only if this is going to be done in synchronicity with major trading partners. Otherwise, we've taken the Canadian advantage and made it the Canadian disadvantage. Goldie, that was great. Uh, thanks for participating in our first ever lightning round, and thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for that, and thank you for this opportunity, Eric, and your leadership in having what I think is a really you know sensible, responsible place to have a conversation with Canadians. That's Goldie Hyder, President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. For a link to the Business Council of Canada's new report, uh, including policy recommendations from the business community on how Canada can achieve its climate goals, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Canada's oil and gas sector, it's the country's largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions. It's also the source of 180,000 jobs. 
That number has fluctuated over the past 30 years, and even recently. Since 2015, it's been on a general decline, largely because of oil prices and other market forces. And the outlook is grim. Last month, TD Economics calculated that global climate policies could drive a 75% drop in employment in the sector towards 2050. So given the risk to jobs, it might seem counterintuitive that the union representing many of these workers recently came out in favour of stronger climate targets, the kind that will accelerate the wind-down of Canada's oil and gas sector. What gives? To explain that, I'm welcoming Joy Warnock. Joy is a Labour representative for Unifor, Canada's largest private sector union. She was previously regional director for the West, and she now serves as assistant to the union president and is responsible for the environment file. Joy, thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Joy, Unifor has 12,000 members working in the oil and gas sector. What kinds of jobs are these? Our members work uh, in the Newfoundland offshore. They work in bitumen mining, the oil sands in, in northern Alberta. Uh, they also we have members who work in processing and refining, and also in the we have workers in the petrochemical industry, in natural gas processing and distribution, and in the service and support jobs that that go along with uh, those sectors as well. Uh, we have members who manufacture steel pipe for the sector, and also members who. Uh, who maintain pipelines. And then beyond that, uh, we have members who, who transport uh, um, oil and gas in rail and shipping. Wow. So union members really at every point along the oil and gas supply chain. Uh, now, it's been a bumpy ride for the sector over the past few years, and the outlook for the future is gloomy. Most analysts, including recently TD Economics, say that a combination of market forces and climate policy will continue to reduce investment and jobs in Canada's oil and gas sector. How do your members feel when they see these kinds of forecasts and and these kinds of trends? The context uh, has been really challenging. You know, I'd say right from 2014 forward and the pandemic is, is pretty much a turning point. We saw uh, the crash of uh, the shock to uh, global energy demand when the world basically shut down at the beginning of the pandemic, more, at least uh, Canada and lots of other countries. Uh, there was the price war. Uh, OPEC was showing strains. We saw for a temporary period of time that oil prices became negative. And um, renewables at the same time are continue, continuing to fall in price. And now the politics have changed as well. So we're looking at uh, U.S. President Biden. It looks like he he is now uh, going to be speeding and scaling up uh, the changes that are going to come in terms of uh, transitioning the economy to a lower carbon economy. And that ups the ante for the Canadian government as well. So our members uh, think a lot about what decarbonizing our economy means for future production. And for our members, they're very good uh, family supporting, family sustaining jobs, and their communities are directly impacted. They have a lot to say about the path to decarbonizing our economy. And that path travels directly through their livelihoods and their lives and communities. So it sounds like maybe no one is more keenly aware of the transition to a cleaner economy than your members. And your union is supportive of that transition, but you say there needs to be a just transition. 
Why is a just transition important to you and, and what does it look like? I have to say uh, our members in the sector have been raising some of these issues for almost 25 years now. And we're hmm. deeply concerned in this moment that the Canadian government hasn't done the work to ensure a just transition on the path to net zero emissions. And that's a whole of economy approach. It seems like it's a, you know, just transition. The concept is often just a sort of passing reference. Uh, and for us, this is crucial to getting it right uh, for workers and communities. Uh, you know, we say there's a path to good, sustainable jobs and strong economies, and just transition is the bridge that will take us there. So we, I can go into the specifics of, you know, what a just transition looks like. The elements are a real plan with a timetable, starting with a labor market impact assessments, um, other uh, ways to, to work with uh, communities that are impacted, uh, uh, community benefit agreements that, that um, enhance training opportunities for uh, impacted workers, for, for the uh, surrounding community, uh, retraining and skills op- skilling opportunities, preferential hiring, um, income supports and bridging, and then tax credits and investment support for affected industries, and the union having a role, having a voice at the table and setting the direction. Now, Joy, your members haven't let the inconvenience of this transition hurt their support for stronger climate targets. In fact, just recently, Unifor came out in favor of even more ambitious Canadian targets for reducing GHG emissions. You joined Climate Action Network and Environmental Defense, among others, in calling for a 60% reduction uh, of GHG emissions by 2030, which would probably involve an accelerated drawdown of Canada's oil and gas sector. That might seem counterintuitive, but, but you say it's not. Why does Unifor support stronger climate targets? You know, we know that uh, globally, in ca- countries including Canada, have not done their fair share. And our, our positions are grounded in science. We know the climate science uh, has been accurate and are accurate going forward. And we know that the economy can't ultimately handle uh, on an un- ongoing decline of our environment. And so our, our members... Um, have adopted, we've adopted the Paris Agreement, and we know that that if, if we're going to stabilize the climate, there's agreement on this, that, that uh, Canada needs to do better. Our global partners, uh, that's the International Transport Workers Federation, the uh, ITUC and other global unions, uh, all of us are calling on governments, not just Canada, to increase ambition and do our fair share. So. Uh, the 60% number, it would be something we would actually have to go and have that d- discussion and debate. The general principles around science, around agreement, uh, that there, is, there needs to be climate action, there needs to be planning, all that is agreed to. And I think what you'd hear our members saying is, is um, the current status is unjust and unplanned transition and uh, workers are paying for the lack of planning in the sector. You can't just shut down fossil fuels. We need to actively plan for how that transition forward is is going to be managed. Okay, so support for stronger climate targets, but on the condition of a solid, just transition plan. Joy, it was great having you on the show. Thanks so much for touching base with us today. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Eric. Take care. 
That's Joy Warnock from Unifor. I reached her at her home office in British Columbia. Now it's time for the 60-second report. It's something we do every show. It's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, we're welcoming Paige Olmsted. Paige is with our own Smart Prosperity Institute and the lead author of a new report called Invest in Nature, Scaling Conservation Finance in Canada for a Nature-Smart Economy. Paige, over to you for a 60-second rundown. Canada's natural assets are globally significant in addressing the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change. Healthy natural environments provide a range of social, environmental, and economic benefits to communities. Protecting and restoring more nature takes investment. Both the public and private sector are making significant commitments to nature, and yet despite the range of potential benefits, we have not seen investment at the scale that is needed. This report asks how nature can be made more investable. The report identifies a number of policy tools that can accelerate investment in nature, including de-risking private sector investment through anchor funding and differential rates of return and other financial tools, by improving collection of and access to financial and ecosystem service data, and by establishing a national coalition for conservation finance. Thanks, Paige. For a link to that new report from Paige Olmsted and Smart Prosperity Institute, you can visit this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. And last but not least, it's the final segment of this show and every show. It's where I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat, to recap all the things happening in the green economy that we didn't cover elsewhere on the show. Mike is the senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute. Mike, over to you for the top five things happening in the green economy this week. I'm Mike Moffitt, Senior Director at Smart Prosperity, and here are the five things that I'm watching this week. Number one, climate targets announced recently by Canada, the United States, and other countries have put the world on track for a 2.4 degree rise in global temperatures, according to work by Climate Action Tracker. It's a 0.2 degree improvement on the previous forecast, but falls short of the Paris Agreement's two degree limit. Number two, Germany has moved its net zero deadline to 2045 from 2050. This comes after a legal ruling by Germany's highest court that found the 2050 target was insufficient to protect future generations. Over 100 countries, including Canada, have pledged to hit net zero by 2050. Number three, there's a buzz in the foodie world as 11 Madison Park, one of the world's top-rated restaurants, announced that it is going 100% plant-based due to the environmental impacts of raising meat. The menu, however, will keep its roughly $335 per customer price tag. Number four, Wyoming is threatening to sue U.S. states that won't buy their coal. Wyoming is the country's largest coal producer, but demand for coal in the U.S. has been in steep decline as governments prioritize cleaner sources of energy. Number five, despite the worldwide lockdown, global emissions of methane have surged to record highs. A new UN-backed report says that reversing this trend could be the fastest way to slow climate change and calls for a 45% reduction this decade. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things I'm watching this week. Thanks, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca.
Well, that does it for another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. If you just can't wait another two weeks until the next one, check out our back catalog. There's 15 episodes in it now, all at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. There you will also find my contact information. Drop me a line if you've got feedback on this episode or if you've got a view that you'd like to have shared on a future episode. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe peoples. Thanks for listening. The next episode is out May 26th. I hope you'll tune in then.